0: What I would like to do is kneel and have a word of prayer uh, before we get into our uh, study for this morning. And so um, if you will kneel with me if possible, if you can, uh, kneel with me and let's come before the Lord together. Father in heaven, we come before you thanking you and praising you for who and what you are, that you are a God of love. But you are also a God of justice, a God of mercy and long-suffering, and we, we praise you for that. Because sometimes, Father, we can be so stubborn about things that may seem to be plain. And so, Father, please forgive us and, and forgive our sins. We thank you so much for Jesus who you gave to, you know, to deal with the sin problem. That He came, became like one of us, something that is a mystery to us. We can't fathom uh, completely. Uh, but we are very thankful and appreciative of such love bestowed. And in Christ we know You gave all heaven so that we may be saved. And may we not uh, dismiss that most precious gift. May we each of us contemplate it seriously and accept that free gift of love and mercy and forgiveness. Father, we come together on this holy Sabbath day, a day that you made to fellowship with us, that we may gain a rest from our labors and our spiritual battles in this great controversy. We ask that the Holy Spirit will be very present with us here, with all saints around the world on this most holy day, that we may learn from your holy word, that we may come into unity and be organized to finish the work that is right before us. and. That we may be prepared for these things that are about to happen. That we may prepare others as well. And give the warning, Revelation 14. That uh, we may spread the three angels' messages throughout this world. And hasten our Lord's return. Lord, we lift up those who are ill, like Susan. Uh, She has allergies. We pray that you'll be near her. And that she can gain a rest today as intended. And Sister Twelve Gates, we pray... Uh, For health for her, and that uh, she be led to the truth as she studies your word. And like all of us, that we accept the truth that we learn and share it with others with a loving heart, not a heart uh, that is uh, uh, just knowledge or debating attitude, but uh, in earnest wanting to know the truth and share it. Uh, Father, I pray that you will be with Roland as he Car load after car load continues to make the move as necessary and that they can finish that up. And pray for Chris. Chris is in a hard spot. And uh, he keeps denying in his actions uh, your love. And I pray that you surround him. Keep him safe while he's in this place. And the same with all our youth or our children. Protect them and keep them safe from the evil one who wants them dead in their sins. And help us to reach them in some way, Lord, too. We thank you so much for your wonderful blessings. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless. So give this message, give me the words to speak, to my companions who keep thy precepts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled this particular message, put you out. Put you out, and uh, it's in line with our what our studies have been about who and what the church is, and and the uh, the place that we may find ourselves in. You know, the last uh, few studies that we did, last couple had to do with how do you deal with sin in the in the church. How do you deal with it? What does the Bible say about it? And we went we went through. Um, those principles that are laid out. Um, but I want to tell you this morning as we begin, I want to say, you know, when God's people come together, God wants to meet with us and He wants to bless us. We come together. And talking to the whole church as they come together, you know, in 1 Corinthians 3, He says, you are a temple. Isn't that what He says? We're a temple. We come together. But friends, I will tell you, if we do something to grieve the Holy Spirit away from our congregation, like allowing open sin to go on in the church unrebuked, then we're just, you know, I'm going to be plain about it, we're just playing church. We're just playing church. And there are some churches, you look back through history, they've been playing church for hundreds of years. They've not had the Holy Spirit there for hundreds of years. And that's why they have to have all kinds of uh, amusements, you see. They have to have entertainment in order to keep their congregants coming back. See, they're, they're appealing to that fleshly desire. Every Sunday, many of these churches, you know, today, they have, they have bands. They have rock bands. They, they put these instruments uh, and, uh, up on the stage and they make the devil's music in a Christian church. Or they'll have uh, certain particular movies, or they they'll have dancing even today. I, I I see it in some of the churches, and I'm not talking just the Pentecostal churches where that's been going on for a long time. But even many of what you would think would would be uh, uh, conservative churches today they have dancing. Uh, many of them have, of course, donuts and coffee waiting for you at the door. You know, um, they have all kinds of of gimmicks appealing to the carnal heart to get people to attend you see they're not considered brethren per se they're considered customers and they have to to abide by the internal revenue services code and and for nonprofitcy and and incorporation so it's big business you see but you don't need the gimmicks Do you? If you have the Holy Spirit, do you need the gimmicks? If your church has the Holy Spirit and the character traits of God, the people that have the Holy Spirit on the inside, won't they be drawn together? Few though they may be in number. Let me share something with you from the SDA Bible Commentary. It's Ellen White's writings found in the commentary, Volume 7, page 949, she says, Those who keep God's commandments, those who live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, compose the church of the living God. Who is it that does it? Those who keep the commandments, those who have lived not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's God's church. And we've covered that before, the character traits, haven't we? But keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind. I want to bring that to refresh your memories maybe a little bit as we go on. Because this is what we've been learning in our look at exactly who and what is the true church of God. And from you know, some responses I received, there are several that have been shocked to find that they're not in its fellowship. They've been shocked to find that they've been deceived as to the definition of the true church and are currently in a fallen church by, by Bible definition. And the question arises, what do they do now that they know the truth? What are they going to do? Well, the Bible given us incredible counsel on what we are to do when confronted with sin. That's what we covered last time. We, we studied Matthew 5. We studied Matthew 18. How to deal with sin in the church. I called it God's checks and balances. But what if you follow the counsel of God's word, but your church rejects it? What do you do? You follow the word of God, you you point out the sin that is rampant, the open sin that is in the church, but the church rejects it. And this is something I want to address because it's happening all over the world. And it has been for some time now, and many are unsure as to what they should be doing. I mean, what do you do if your church is in apostasy and rejects a call to repent? Do you remain and do nothing? Do you leave? If you're a commandment keeper living for Jesus and you are in a fallen church, there are only two things, friends, that can happen in such a situation. There's only two. Now remember, if you're a commandment keeper living for Jesus, that's what I said, there's only two things that can happen in such a situation. Your church is either going to repent of its sin due to the testimony of the true witness through you, and maybe others, or your church will put you out of the synagogue due to your testimony. And so what do you do if, if the church you belong to, the organization you belong to, doesn't repent of its sin? And I'm talking about corporate repentance, see? Though repentance at the local level, that's the good start, isn't it? And we studied that a bit last time. But what do you do? What do you do if your church rejects God's rebuke and refuses to repent? And what do you do if you're put out of the synagogue because you keep the commandments and live righteously? Is I think these are important questions for sure. Now we know from our studies that there are only two churches. There's the Church of Christ, known in end-time prophecy as the remnant of God. And there's the Church of Antichrist, known in end-time prophecy as Babylon Fallen. And these two churches, these two spiritual armies, are in a great war. In Revelation 17, the final war is described. The defeat of Babylon, it's described in Revelation 18. And the great worldwide confederacy against the army of the Lord, like I said, is described in Revelation 17. And I want to go there. Revelation 17, verses 12 to 13. It says that this confederacy will have one mind. It's going to have one mind. Maybe different organizations... Have you seen the bumper sticker? We were kind of talking about it today earlier. That says coexist. It says coexist, and it has all these different religious symbols on it. You know, it has the cross, it has yin and yang, and it has Judaism. It has all these symbols. It says coexist. Friends, this is a confederacy that we're dealing with. They have one mind, it says, this confederacy. They will be unified. They will be organized. There will be a worldwide confederacy against the truth of God, the commandments of God and the people of God. It started back there in Revelation 3.15. We read it. God put enmity between the two. And that's not going away. This idea put forth of coexisting with all these other religions now. Hey, we're not uh, advocating that you war, but it's a spiritual conflict, isn't it? To think that Christianity can coexist with the world, that comes from the devil. He wants to lull you into a satisfaction of aren't we all just loving and tolerant? And yet, in such a condition, you don't see the need of a Savior. It's a confederacy against God. Against the truth of God, against the commandments of God, against the people of God. Revelation twelve or 17, look at verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Look at verse 13. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, some people get hung up there where it says one hour with the beast. And I, and I just want to clear that up, hopefully, for just a moment here. Periods of time, friends, mentioned in prophetic passages of Scripture, do not always designate what is commonly known as prophetic time. And what I say is a day for a year principle. For instance, the seven years of famine predicted by Joseph were literal years. Genesis 41, you can read that. As is also true of the 40 years of wandering foretold in Numbers 14.34, which we, we use to say this can be a day for a year. Some have taken the one hour, and this is my point, some have taken the one hour spoken of here as prophetic time, which would represent a period of about two weeks of literal time. However, friends, we can't pull things out of their context. The context seems to imply something different. It's generally recognized that chapter 18 here in Revelation gives a more detailed explanation of events that we are reading here in chapter 17. I'm just going to spend a moment on here. But the period of time designated as one day in Revelation 18 and verse 8 is also called one hour in verses 10 and 17 and 19 of the same chapter. So, I think the obvious intent of inspiration is to indicate a, a brief period of time It's not really specifying an exact length. You see what I'm saying? Accordingly, it seems preferable to take the expression one hour in this verse in the same sense as indicating a brief but unspecified period of time. Or you got confusion. Why would it say one hour in chapter 17 and speaking of the same exact thing, say one day in chapter 18? What's happening is it's saying, for an unspecified period of time, you see, this gonna happen. But that's not what I want to emphasize here. I just want to throw that out there. Study that for yourself. What I want to emphasize is not the time element, but what we are told here in verse fourteen. He says, These, and that again, that's the worldwide confederacy that are of one mind, remember? He says, These shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Those who are with Jesus are what? Now, of course, Jesus is going to conquer them because He's the Lord of lords and He's the King of kings, isn't He? But those, it says, that are with Him, notice the three expressions. And I want to make a point about this. Because we're looking at here a worldwide confederacy against the people of God. Against God, His people, His commandments. Okay? But notice these three expressions. It says that they are called and chosen but doesn't stop there. It says, and faithful. Have you been called? I want to tell you, friends, it's not enough to only hear the call. That's not enough. It's not enough just to hear the gospel. It's not enough to hear the call. You must accept the call from Christ. And if you accept the call, then you'll be one who is chosen. See? But also, beloved, it's not even enough to be one who is called and to accept the call. It is also necessary to remain faithful, isn't it? And this is the problem with the tares and the foolish virgins and the Laodiceans. You see, they heard the call. They were chosen for membership, but they were not found to be faithful. Now, I'd like to read you an interesting scripture about something that took place in the life of Jesus the uh, the night that he was betrayed. And it may give help in answering our questions. What do you do if your church is in apostasy and refuses to repent? Or they put you out of, uh, of their membership. They put you out of the, the synagogue. The Apostle John has the most complete, I think I mentioned this earlier, the complete descriptions of what happened the night Jesus was betrayed. You know, they're, they're some of my most favorite chapters in all of God's Word. We find the descriptions in John, you know, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know. It's a good part of the book, actually. <laughs> but in the middle of these scenes that we see described by the Apostle, we have this counsel concerning the world's hatred and the coming rejection of the Christ by the world. It's found in John 15, uh, beginning with verse 18 and on. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, you remember. They've already left the upper room. They've eaten the Passover. They've eaten the first communion supper, right? Before that, as you you read in John 13, Jesus washed His disciples' feet, remember? He told them that He was leaving. You recall that? So, they'd been with Jesus. It was a joyous occasion. They had communion together. Of course, Judas had left, right? Jesus cleaned them. They're happy. It's a joyous time. And then he says he's leaving. (laughs) So they're very sorrowful. They're very troubled too. And he's trying to comfort them, but he has to, you see what he has to do, he has to mingle the happy truth with sad truth. And there are some things that are going to happen that are not very nice. So he has to mingle the happy with the sad and it helps to kind of lighten the load a bit, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we say, i got good news and bad news, you know. What do you, what do you want first? And some people say, well, give me the bad first, right? Because then I can end on a happy note, you're going to give me the good news, see? I haven't run into anybody who says, well, give me the good news first, and then let me hear the bad news. It's usually always, give me the bad news first. It kind of helps lighten the load. So in John 14 and 15 and 16, here Jesus paints a very happy picture about the future. You know, how, how they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And He said in John 14, 1 to 3, and we're very familiar with these, aren't we not? As those who believe in the blessed hope, right? The return of our Lord and Savior, Adventists, the second advent of Jesus, right? We know this, John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled, He says. Do you have a troubled heart today, friends? Jesus is saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He doesn't say, I go to prepare a place for the inhabitants of the world. He makes it personal. He says, you. You. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Praise God. Friends, we have something to look forward to, do we not? He's going to come again. What's He going to do when He comes? He's going to receive you, He said. I'm going to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We're going to be together. So he promised. He promised them and us, friends, that he was coming back and he told them that he told them that he was leaving but he said i'm going to come back and i want to tell you friends jesus will not break a promise that he has made to us bank on it it's the only thing you can bank on is the word of god the word of jesus Now the keynote of the New Testament message is that this same Jesus who was crucified, who slept in Joseph's tomb, who was raised from the dead, this very same Jesus is coming back to receive us. The called, the chosen, the faithful. So he painted a very happy picture for them. Remember, that's John 14, right? He was coming back. And in between the time that he left and would come back... They were going to receive the Holy Spirit. He told them in John 14, look at verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter. There's that word another there. That He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him. The world doesn't know the truth. They can't discern it. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. It seeth him not, he says, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now friends, that was the fulfilled starting, that was fulfilled uh, you know, on the day of Pentecost. That's where it started there. So, mingled with these wonderful, happy descriptions that Jesus is giving here, he has to tell them the truth about some things that are going to happen. So, so that they will not be overwhelmed with discouragement when it does happen. He's mixing happy truth and sad truth. And he starts telling them about this, and, and let's look at it together. Let's go to John fifteen. John fifteen, beginning with verse eighteen. And this is the point. You know, like I said mentioned before about that bumper sticker, coexist. Jesus nails it right here and he says, That's impossible, you see, because there's good and evil. Darkness and light can't coexist. And Jesus says here in verse 18, He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. The world's not going to hate you if you're of the world because you're a part of the world. Remember? The world has one mind. They coexist, but they cannot coexist with those who uh, love Jesus. You see what I'm saying? You can't combine darkness and light. Jesus says, But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Oh, it may seem they're coexisting with you, friends, but no, not really. Verse 20, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They're just looking for the right time, friends. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. And that's the point. As Christians, as you live as Jesus lived, and you get closer to living as Christ, as His life becomes perfected in yours, your character, just by living, friends, you become a rebuke to to those who sin. That's why the Sanhedrin, that's why a lot of the people in leadership there in Jerusalem, hated Jesus. He could have walked around and not said one word to them, but that his life was a rebuke to their life. And what was the reaction? We have to kill this man because we have no cloak for our sin anymore. You see? Coexist between true Christianity and all other pagan, fallen Babylonian religions. It's unbelievable that people can be Deceived in such a thing. Think such things. Jesus here lays it plain. He that hateth me, hateth my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. Because their sin has been shown. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. History will be repeated, friends. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Notice it's not, I will testify of myself. It's he will testify of me. And he also shall share bear, excuse me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. And so here Jesus, he's laying this out and he, he's telling them, he intermingles the happy with the sad uh, future of receiving the Holy Spirit. But he continues in chapter sixteen. Remember that in the original manuscripts there's no uh, there's no chapter and verse breakdowns. It just rolls right on. And so we go to to John 16, verse 1. And he says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. They shall. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Oh, they profess to They are the foolish virgins. They are the tares. They are the Laodiceans. They profess it all. But they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. Now I'm going to be going away, see. And these things are going to happen. But I'm going to send you a comforter. He's going to lead you in the way and I will come back. That's the blessed hope, friends. So Jesus says the time's coming when they will put you out of the synagogue. So what are you, what are you to do if your church is in apostasy and, and refuses to repent? Friends, if you remain faithful to Jesus, you eventually will be put out of its membership. That's step one. Either the, the church repents of its sin or it will put you out of the church, one or the other. It will happen. So Jesus mentions the first thing that happens, but after that he, he mentions the last thing. And whenever there is a, a, a putting out of the, the synagogue, like Jesus is talking about, it will always end with something else as we see Jesus saying here. What will it end with? He says, The time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God's service. Now, sometimes it's rendered this way, that everyone who kills you will glory that he is offering service to God. Well, I can tell you one religion right now that does that. They say, Allah Akbar, when they kill innocent people. (laughs) Glory to God. Now, what does it mean for somebody to be put out of the synagogue? Well, the Jews at that time, and for hundreds of years really, they had a 30 day ban from the synagogue for certain offenses, such as, you know, derogatory speech against someone in authority. But they also had a permanent ban from the synagogue. And friends, that's the context that Jesus is talking about. Today we say you've been disfellowshipped. That's what's being talked about here. It's not censorship, which is the 30 day ban, but it's disfellowship. Now, is there ever a time when it is lawful for a church to disfellowship someone? Well, we looked at this last time we were together, didn't we? The Bible's quite plain about that. There is a time when the church is commanded to disfellowship someone. I'll look at that. um, Let's look at that for a moment, just real quick. I mean, we could read several texts in the New Testament, but we'll just read the one that's very familiar. We looked at this situation in our last study. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul here writing to the church there at Corinth. He says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, that's his stepmother, friends, and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that um, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. What does it mean to be taken away here? Paul's talking about. It means that he is disfellowshipped. And Paul goes on to say in verses 3 to 5, he says, "...Verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present, concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." Paul is telling the congregation here, friends, to disfellowship him from the church so that he can be saved. Well, that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, disfellowshipping is like the last effort to reconcile (laughs) for a person to see the course they're taking. And, of course, we, we know the church did remove this man from membership And it appears that not only did they disfellowship him, but he realized that he was going to lose eternal life if he didn't repent and change his life. And it seems in 2 Corinthians that this man did repent, was later taken back into fellowship because he forsook his sins. But we see here in 1 Corinthians 5 that that, that if a person is living in open sin, now you know what open sin is, right? A secret sin, well any sin is breaking one of God's commandments. But we or any other church do not have authority or permission to judge secret sins because we can't read somebody's heart, we can't read their mind. Now we covered there are ways, you know, that if God's frown is upon a church that you can go about searching that out. Okay, we we studied that last time, but we would make a mistake every time we turned around if we thought we could judge someone's heart or mind, wouldn't we? That's why the tares, the foolish virgins, and Laodiceans remain in the church militant until the close of probation. We can't read the heart, and they're not open sinners. But if somebody's living in open sin, like this man was, the Paul said, you're to disfellowship that person. If they repent and they forsake their sins, then they can be accepted back into fellowship again. But his open sin, what Jesus was talking about to his disciples in John 16, when he said, they shall put you out of the synagogues, Was he talking about because you're open sinners? Were they cast out of the synagogue because they were living in sin? No, they were not. Well, then why were they disfellowshipped? Why were they put out? Friends, the reason that they were put out of the synagogue was because they had accepted and believed the testimony of Jesus even more than they believed the authority of the church. What do you think about that? The disciples of Jesus accepted the testimony of Jesus. You know, in Revelation 19.10, it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The followers of Christ accepted the testimony of Jesus above the authority of the church and were disfellowshipped because of it. I mean, think about that for a few moments in comparison to the professed church in our day, friends. The disciples were disfellowshipped because they accepted the testimony of Jesus above the testimony of the Jewish church. Now, should you accept the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, above the church? If you do that, should you be disfellowshipped for it? (laughs) Now, friends, the true church wouldn't disfellowship someone for that because the true church accepts the testimony of Jesus above (laughs) the organization. The organization isn't the church. Now, Jesus told the disciples that this would happen to them. He told them that they were going to be disfellowshipped and they would, uh, that they were going to be put out of the synagogue. Now, I've noticed this in my experience. People can react to being disfellowshipped in different ways depending upon their biblical understanding and faith, particularly about who and what the church is. For example... If a person is in error as to the identification of the true church and their disfellowship for keeping the commandments from what they believe is the true church, which, friends, to me should be a big eye-opener that it cannot be the true church, but what happens is they'll try to do all that they can to get back into that supposed true church. You see, they believe with their whole heart that this fallen church is actually the true church. I know of a very prominent independent ministry leader who has made the statement, he, he was removed from the general conference of Seventh-day Adventists. He said he'll stay, stay at the door like Mordecai begging to get back in. He doesn't understand who and what the church is. <laughs> now this happened in the New Testament. There are lots of testimonies about Christians that tried to do that. They were removed and they wanted to get back in. You can read it in Galatians. You can read it in Philippians. These people said, they have disfellowshipped us, but we're going to figure out a way to get back in there, for we are the descendants of Abraham. Do you know that they were what they were called by the Apostle Paul? These people that did this. They were called Judaizers. These Judaizers followed the Apostle Paul to every single church that he raised up. Then they went into these churches and they taught the people that they needed to get circumcised so they could get back into the Jewish church, the true church, they thought. You could not get back into the Jewish church unless you were circumcised, you see. Notice this, Acts of the Apostles, page 188. With great assurance, these Judaizing teachers asserted that in order to be saved, one must be circumcised and must keep the entire ceremonial law. In order to be saved, you gotta be in this church. You gotta have this name. Sound familiar? They said, You need to follow all this protocol so that you can get back into the true church. Have you ever met anyone that has been to this fellowship but they wanted back in the same church? They determined to join the church. Somewhere else, you see. Well, I'll just go somewhere else and join. I'll go to Texas or California or maybe I'll go over to Africa or wherever they could just to get back in the press church that they believed was the true church. Like I said, there are several prominent historic Adventist ministries, friends, that have this same Judaizing characteristic. They've been disfellowshipped from the General Conference of Adventists, but they try to get back in the conference and encourage others to do the same. these professed independent ministries, do you know they won't hire anyone that's not a conference member? (laughs) They don't have a campus church themselves, but encourage all to attend a conference church. They teach that the conference is the church militant. And they speak against anyone making the call to come out of the conference declaring all that do will be lost. Friends, this is a repeat of history. They don't understand who and what the church is. They have a misunderstanding on that. And that's a fatal misunderstanding. Let me read something to you. Ellen White. Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary. Ellen White's Comments, Volume 6, page 1110. Factions also were beginning to rise through the influence of Judaizing teachers who urged that the converts to Christianity should observe the ceremonial law in the matter of circumcision they still maintain that the original Israel were the exalted and privileged children of Abraham and were entitled to all the promises made to him. I'm telling you, it's a repeat of history. She says, They sincerely thought that in taking this medium ground between Jew and Christian, between historic and conference, there are thousands who take the medium ground, friends. They would succeed in removing the odium which attached to Christianity and would gather in large numbers of the Jews. We'll bring them right back into the conference. So I could smell. Does this not sound like what's been happening in historic Admonton? Are there not teachers within the historic movement teaching that the conference church is the true church and going through no matter what? I'm telling you, friends. This is the the definition. These are the characteristics of a Judaizer. And and I, I say that with compassion, friends. Believe me. But I'll tell you, some of the strongest rebukes in the whole New Testament are given to these Judaizers. The Apostle Paul had no use for them. He said they ought to be cut off. They ought to be disfellowship from the true church. These people trying to get back in the conference church ought to be disfellowship. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying to the Galatians. It was so bad that the majority of the Christian church in Jerusalem consisted of this kind of people. And it was because of this. It really was because of this that the ministry of the Apostle Paul was cut short you can read about that in the book, Sketches from the Life of Paul. The ministry of the Apostle Paul was cut short, and the God of heaven allowed it to be cut short. And you know why? It was because of all the Judaizers in the Christian church. I'll tell you, I can relate in many ways to that. I still believe I have a work to do, praise God. But if the Lord wants to call my work short, I'll just praise God. It's not an easy task, let me tell you, to deal with Judaizers. You know, they were not only intent on getting back into the synagogue themselves, but they regarded as heretics anyone who did not try to get back into the synagogue. Yeah, I can relate. There are many people like that in Adventism. When they're disfellowshipped, they try to figure out how to get a membership in some other church, in some other state or country, but in the same conference, same general conference. They consider that anybody else that doesn't do the same thing they're doing is a heretic, and they speak evil of them. Oh, he's a separationist. All kinds of accusations come out. And they create several straw man arguments. You know, the ship is going through, the sacred name, the apple of God's eye, etc., cetera, et cetera. You know, they think that helps their stand against those who follow the truth and call people out of apostasy, you see. They misuse the terms Babylon and apostasy to confuse the true definition of the church. And, you know, they've been successful in destroying the work of faithful ministers, I'll tell you. They speak out against organizing the scattered flocks into more than just a local church. Whose side are they on? Let me read this to you. Sketches from the life of Paul, page 122. The Judaizing party looked upon Paul as an apostate. Yes. Bent upon breaking down the partition wall between which God had established between the Israelites and the world. They visited every church which he had organized, creating divisions, holding that the end would justify the means. Now, who holds that as a principle of their philosophy. That's Antichrist. The ends justifies the means. Holding that the end would justify the means, they circulated false charges against the apostle and endeavored to bring him into disrepute. As Paul, in visiting the churches, followed after these zealous and unscrupulous opposers, he met many who viewed him with distrust and some who even despised his labors. Man, can I relate. I had a good friend who worked in the South Pacific. He passed away a few years ago. I miss him. I had good talks with him. He worked in the South Pacific, raising up and organizing faithful, historic Adventist churches. And friends, these Judaizing ministries did what their character laid out. I mean, what we just read. They would come in right behind him. They would sow seeds of discontent within these churches and try to get them to disband and go to the conference churches. And these ministries, they did the same things all over the world. They still do it today. They did it in Australia, Africa, South America. They're still doing it today. They're Judaizers. They should be disfellowshipped. My dad used to say, Katie, bar the door. Don't let them in. Now, why would these people go to such extremes? They believe that when they were disfellowshipped that they were removed from God, you see, and God's favor. That until they can get back into that church, they are separated from God and will be lost. So they war against the truth and think that they doeth God's service, you see, by supporting the fallen church and attacking any who speak against it. They believe that being disfellowshipped has removed them from God's presence. Is this true? Well, friends, quickly, let's consider Stephen for a moment. Let me put this to rest. or let the Bible do it. Do you know how far you can go in disfellowshipping? What is, and I touched on this earlier, what is the ultimate in disfellowshipping somebody? Well, the ultimate in the Jewish church for disfellowshipping somebody was to stone them to death. No worries about them coming back. No worries about him disrupting, dividing, etc. You see, that's as far as you can go. And they went that far with Stephen, didn't they? They not only put him out of the synagogue, they took him out and they stoned him to death. Now let me ask a very important question about Stephen. When he was put out of the synagogue, did Jesus forsake him? No. No. He didn't forsake him because it says in Acts 7 that Stephen looked up into the heavens and he saw Christ leaning over and looking at him and watching him. Acts 7.55 But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And when Stephen testified to what he saw, oh, that's when they got mad, you see. They got so mad that they stoned him but Christ did not forsake him. And I want to be very clear. When you are put out of the synagogue, if you are cast out for righteousness' sake, you're not living a life of sin. Jesus will not forsake you ever. That's good news, isn't it? The same is true if you leave the synagogue because of its unrepentant apostasy. You've gone all channels that you could. Their blood is then on their hands, friends, and you need to leave. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, He said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Friends, I'll tell you, if there is apostasy from the truth, Jesus is not present there, for He is the truth. If the church is in apostasy, it's because Jesus has been put out of the synagogue. <laughs> That's what they did to him, you see. They not only put him out of the synagogue, they nailed him to a tree and crucified him. Is it going to be any different to us? So don't feel bad if you've been to fellowship because of a life of Righteousness. Don't feel bad if you've left because of unrepentant apostasy, for if you're in good company, Jesus is with you. Amen. Now there's another point we need to think about before we close our study. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, Christ is not divided. Now, if Christ is not divided, then Christ cannot be on both sides of a war or conflict. I mean, that makes sense, right? Christ is not divided. In other words, Christ does not fight Christ. Let me make it real simple. If Jesus is living in your heart and Jesus is living in my heart, will you and I get into a fight? No, we will not. There may be many things that we don't understand the same way, but if Jesus is in your heart and Jesus is in my heart, we'll not get into a fight because Christ is not divided. There's not going to be war between us. Now, if Christ is not divided, if he remains faithful to the one who fears him and accepts his testimony and keeps his commandments, if he stays with the one who is disfellowshipped for his sake, then like I said, Christ himself has been disfellowshipped in the person of his disciple. I want you to notice what Jesus says about this very point in Matthew 12 and verse 30. He says, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Well, Mike is... Okay. Matthew 12:30 we just read. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Is it possible for you or for me to be neutral in this great controversy? What does Jesus say? What did he just say? It is not possible to be neutral. And friends, don't ever forget that. You cannot be neutral in this great controversy. There is a supernatural fight A controversy going on. And Jesus said, he that is not with me is what? Against me. You cannot be neutral. You're on one side or you're on the other. So if a person is following righteousness and living according to God's law, Jesus is not going to forsake him. Even if he is disfellowshipped from the professed church. Even if the whole church votes unanimously to kick him out, Jesus will not forsake him if you're following righteousness and living according to God's law and leave a church that is not doing the same, thus an apostasy, Jesus does not forsake you. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Now we're going to talk about proper organization in the coming weeks ahead. But Jesus doesn't forsake you. But here's a group of people who said to Stephen, you're getting out. They were against him. So what does it mean if Jesus stays with Stephen? There are only two sides, right? Jesus now is with the person who has been disfellowshipped. What does that mean for the rest of the people in the church? (laughs) That's a good question, isn't it? They disfellowshipped this person who was living a righteous life and following the Lord. The Lord will not forsake him. What does that say about the rest of the people in that church? It means, friends, that they are on the opposite side of the great controversy. Remember, there are only two sides, and there's no such thing as neutrality. You're on one side or the other. And there are only two churches in the world, there are only two sides to the great controversy. And so those who disfellowship a person because he believes and follows the testimony of Jesus, those people declare to the whole universe that they're on the wrong side of the great controversy and the one disfellowshipped is on the right side. When you start thinking about that, this disfellowshipping business becomes very, very serious. It wasn't If it wasn't serious already. If there's somebody in our group who's living according to the commandments of Jesus... Now, they might be making some mistakes in their life, but they're not living in open sin. And we decide we do not like them because of this or that, and we disfellowship them from the church. Do you know what we've done? We have declared to the whole universe that we're on the opposite side of the great controversy. Then they're on. And the Lord is not going to forsake them. And if the Lord doesn't forsake the one who was wrongfully disfellowshipped, what does that say about the church that put them out? You know, that's that's how a church becomes a church of Antichrist, friends. The Bible calls it the synagogue of Satan. Remember, Jesus said, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. And when they cast the disciples out of the synagogue, who took it over? Satan took it over. And when you cast out the people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, what is left? the devil. And he takes complete control and it becomes his synagogue, the synagogue of Satan. Beloved, think this through carefully. Disfellowshipping has taken place today. People are being fellowship today who are not living in open sin. And when that happens, any church that does that, friends, any church, declares to the whole universe that they're on the devil's side of the great controversy and they become a part of the synagogue of Satan. Let me read this to you. It's from the General Conference Daily Bulletin, April 1st, 1897. Satan has a church upon the earth with which outnumbers the church of Christ. Christ calls it the synagogue of Satan because its members are the children of sin and transgression. They have ceased to honor God They have cast His divine law aside. They have confounded the distinction between good and evil. And friends, what we're talking about here is very serious. The Jews in these synagogues can talk all they want to about the truth that they have, about the scriptures that they have, about receiving the Holy Spirit, about having the law of God, about having the testimonies for the church, having the name or anything else they want to profess but they're actually part of the synagogue of Satan. Remember I said, the first step will always be followed by the second and to the last. The first step is to disfellowship. The second step is to take legal action. We see that today. We've been threatened with that. And, you know, legal action, sanctions. The third step is finally to kill. See it all throughout the great controversy, friends. Because you see, the synagogue of Satan will never be content just to put you out. You have truth that reflects badly upon their profession of being God's true church. So they will first put you out. But you're going to continue following Christ, you see. So then they'll persecute you with legal actions and penalties. But you're going to continue to follow Christ and give the call. And when that fails to end your testimony, they're going to seek to kill you. That happened in Christ's day. It happened in the dark ages. It's happening today in spots around the globe. Revelation 13 says that there's coming a time when if you're faithful to God, there's going to be a universal death decree against you. It is going to happen. That's the last step in putting you out of the synagogue. And when they cast you out of the synagogues, Jesus said, remember that I told you before it happened. I told you so you'd recognize it. So you'd know. That you would know that I'm your Savior. And I'm by your side. You see? So what do you do if your church has fallen? You go through the characteristics we've gone through. Who and what the church is the Bible defines. And you find that you're in a church that's fallen. What do you do? You see the open sin. The error that's taught. You bring it to their attention. They reject it. What do you do? What do you do if you're put out of the synagogue because you keep the commandments and live righteously by faith? Well, friends, I want to encourage you. The first thing not to do is not to be discouraged and think God has forsaken you. Look at Mark 10. Verse 29, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. And they put you out, you're, Left all those things to follow Jesus, friends. You've gained hundredfold more because you've entered the family of God. And eternal life. Jesus never forsakes anyone who lives for Him and He will lead you step by step, you see, to continue in your walk. And you will find yourself better for it, actually. Part of that walk, you see, is to symbol together. Oh, they may put you out, but we're still to assemble together the best we can because the church was organized for service. We're told this in Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That's why we assemble together. That's why we've come together here, to encourage one another. To love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day is close. And friends, I'll tell you, this is not talking about individuals coming together only. This is talking about all parts of the body of Christ, every person, every little flock that keeps his commandments and has the faith of Jesus. We are to organize for service. We share this, God's Amazing Grace, page 110. The Lord in His wisdom has arranged that by means of the close relationship that should be mani- maintained by all believers, Christians shall be united to Christian and church to church. Local congregations to local congregations. We saw a form of this organization in the early movement of the Adventist church and as it grew. There are right principles there. Organization isn't wrong. if it's done according to God's blueprint, friends. Thus, the human instrumentality will be enabled to cooperate with the divine. Every agency will be subordinate to the Holy Spirit and all the believers will be united in an organized and well-directed effort to give to the world the glad tidings of the grace of God. Oh, friends, we must draw together. Beloved, we've got to draw together. Right now there are many of God's children scattered all over the world and the Lord would have us organized for service. We must come to grips with this and allow the Lord to teach us and mold us and organize us friends for His service. In 1 Corinthians 14.33 we read, For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all churches of the saints. Friends, let us have that peace of God in all the churches. We must be organized to have peace and fulfill the gospel commission. We've got to be organized. God cannot bless disorganization. We'll get into that. Let us seek that unity of the Spirit. Let us by grace organize together as God would have us to hasten the saving of souls and to hasten the Lord's return. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for Jesus. We thank you for his life of righteousness, for his example to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you freely give to us, to help us in our walk. Father, we pray you forgive us for where we have failed, where we've misunderstood things, where we have misunderstandings between each other. Help us, Lord, to put those things aside, to come into the truth, to love one another as Jesus has loved us, as you love us. Fathers, we study about organization, proper principles, guide us into the truth that we may be organized as individuals, as families, as churches. And though we do what we can in our church, we find that they have put us out or we have left because they have fallen. Let us be assured in our hearts that you have not forsaken us, that all heaven stands by us as so we stand for truth. We stand for Jesus. Lord, continue to be with us and bless us and keep us safe from the enemy. The time is coming when we will be in this final conflict. May we stand and follow Jesus wherever He may go. We pray in Jesus' name for these things.